Well, good evening. Uh, thanks again to the guys for leading us this evening. And those songs do help us as we uh, continue really in Genesis and we reach chapter 38. So let's turn there together. Genesis 38. Some of you may know this passage. Some of you may have read it before this evening. Um, we're going to read it again and take some time here to do that. And uh, it is a striking passage. Um, a seemingly difficult and complex passage. But we'll work through this together in the time we have this evening. So let's read together and then we'll pray. And then we'll look at it together. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adalamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judas, firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, but she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, 
if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is that cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men, the play, uh, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. We need to pray, don't we? Let's do that, and then we'll study this together. Father, not let, don't let us shy away from passages like this in our study. Teachers, we pray as we look at this together, this real-life, real-time event, with all its complexities, with its real and vivid language. May we tackle it. May we apply it. And may th through its reading and its study of it, we pray that you would show us your hand at work. Show us how it fits in this storyline. Show us how it fits in your storyline. Lord, may we see the big picture this evening, we pray. So help us now by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Joseph narrative seems to be abruptly interrupted. 
by this Judah and Tamar account. It, it sort of appears in the storyline and seemingly breaks or breaks the flow, really, of uh, the narrative. Why? Well, these are three questions that I had. Why is the shift? Why the move in narrative and character from Joseph to Judah? Does the shift have any bearing on the story as we know it? Or is it just an awkward editorial insertion? Okay, there's three questions that maybe we should be asking as we approach a, a section of the scriptures like this, and they are legitimate. Many scholars have battled with the idea that chapter 38 should not be here. That simply is an awkward editorial insertion, but tonight I will try and prove otherwise. And what an account this is. It is circumstantially complicated, to say the least. It is messy and unordered. And yet again, seemingly dysfunctional in the life of Judah and Tamar and their family now, the next generation. So let's run through the story again. And I'm going to, like this morning, as it is narrative, work through this story with you tonight. Judah, having left the place where his brothers were, okay, so you remember the brothers that we spoke about, we have spoke about for two weeks, Judah is now away. He has left the place where his brothers were, he has gone and he has married a Canaanite woman who to this day remain, remains unnamed. We only know her as the daughter of the man named Sure, look at verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. We do not know the name of Judah's wife at this point. We must know uh, beyond this that it's not necessarily that we don't know her name but the important thing is that she's a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite. And to marry a Canaanite woman was forbidden. Turn to chapter 24 of Genesis for a second. Genesis 24 and verse 3. Here we have Isaac. Abraham, this storyline here, this narrative, and in verse 3 of chapter 24, well, let's go from verse 2, maybe. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom 
I dwell. Turn to chapter 28. And verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Couldn't be much clearer. For the generations. And written down and known from generation to generation, from decade to decade, that they were not to take a Canaanite woman in marriage. So Judah, the fourth-born son, who is now actually in the place of the birthright, and that is due to the sin of his older brothers, he takes a Canaanite woman as his own. Something he knew full well not to do. And she bore Judah three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The firstborn Ur, when matured, was given by his father to marry Tamar. A Canaanite woman. But Ur was not a righteous man, it says. He was a wicked man. To the point where we are told that because of his unrighteousness and because he was unrighteous in the eyes of the Lord, he was put to death. That's verse 7 of chapter 38. So uh, Judas, firstborn, is dead. Having married Tamar, but not having produced any offspring. And please follow me here, because this paints the picture. And so arrives Onan to the scene. He arrives. After the death of his brother, it was right in that day to fulfill his Leverite duty. Okay, he was a Levi, and he had a duty. And what do I mean by that Leverite duty? Well, it was now the responsibility of Onan to lay with his sister-in-law so that they may bear children. But here's the important part. Here's the catch. If Onan lay with Tamar and she conceived, the children that she bore would not be his. But the descendants of his deceased brother, Ur. That's the way it was. So if Onam was to lay with Tamar, Ur having died, the offspring that she produced would rightly be Ur's and would receive all that Ur should have received if he lived. And Onan knew it. He knew that was the case. He knew that would be the outcome of his sleeping with Tamar. Judah, therefore, commanded Onan to lay with Tamar. However, although Onan did lay with her, he wasted his semen on the ground and by this dishonored the request and was also put to death. 
by God in verse 10. One commentator says this, Obligated to fulfill his Leverite duty to his deceased brother, Onan nonetheless attempts to evade it. For Onan knew that his seed would not be his. Onan knew that to fulfill his Leverite duty with Tamar would remove the seed inheritance from him. You see it? If he was to lay with Tamar, Ur having died, the offspring would rightly be Ur's, and they would receive the inheritance because they were the next in line from the firstborn son, Ur. So why would he do it? His selfish motive, even beyond his duty, was to not do it. And therefore, he would, of course, receive the inheritance because there were no boys or further offspring from Tamar. A selfish motive drove Onan to his death. Judah, after the death of two sons, told Tamar to go and live as a widow as he was worried that his youngest son, Shelah, in whom the Leverite duty now fell, would also die. What a predicament for a father. He's lost two sons due to their disobedience and their wickedness. Could he risk this again? Everything in him was trying to stop this from happening. To lose his third and final son would just be too much. And therefore tells Tamar to go and live as a widow. Clifford, an Old Testament scholar, views the prominent events of the deaths of Judah's sons as follows. The deaths of Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, by unprecedented divine action, before they could beget any children, surely imply that Judah's marriage to a Canaanite woman, was cursed by God. Strong, but probably true. It would indicate that through Judah's concern for the life of his sons, Shelah, in keeping him from Tamar, that he also looked upon Tamar as a figure who was cursed as a result of the death of his two older sons. You see how deep the story goes. After the death of Judah's wife in verse 12, which we've read already, he journeyed to Timnah in verse 13 to his sheep shearers. It is known that Judah, uh, now away from his brothers, owned land and livestock and staff. He was a man of land. He was a man who owned uh, livestock and he employed. Tamar, a widow bound to her father's house gained knowledge on the soon arrival of her father-in-law. He was coming in his mourning, or as we'll get to in a minute, I'll explain the mourning and the comforting and the reason for those two. He was coming to Timnah. 
Well, she gets dressed as a prostitute and waits on the road to Timna. Entrance to a name, she waits. And Tamar's plan here, if we see it the way we ought to see it, I believe, is so bold. And not in the sense of Northernish, you're bold. As in bold, strong, and focused, and as we will see, righteous. She had been waiting for the handing over of Judah's third and only living son. And having seen with her own eyes, that's what it says there. Having seen Sheila was grown up in verse 14. Her plan of deception towards Judah was in play. Let's read verse 13 through 16. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? Tamar was wise. She knew two major facts and factors that would play to her advantage. She knew that Judah's wife was dead and that the week of mourning was over. Why is this significant? Well, look at the word comforted in verse 12. This means now a week has passed. A week of mourning was over. We looked at that this morning a little bit. And now he would be looking for female company. Secondly, she knew it was sheep shearing time. Why does this make any difference, you ask? Well, she knew that Judah would be coming to see his old friend, Hira, verse 1. And that prostitutes would be out selling their services as fertility magic to ensure that the growth of the fields and herds happened. That's the context of the day. Therefore, in a flash, it seems, she gets dressed. She gets dressed and she waits on the road for Judah, her father-in-law. Judah saw a prostitute, which was Tamar, covered up, and before laying with her, a deal was made. And this deal comes in two parts. She's wise. Remember that. She's wise. The first part of the deal was this. She wanted an assurance that he would sleep with her. 
And so he promised her a kid from the flock, a goat. He would promise her a goat. Then a pledge was desired from Tamar. A pledge being something that assured the first part of the deal. So to assure that she would receive the goat, she asked that he would pledge something to her. Well, she made the requests for his signet, his cord, and his staff. Why these? Why not something else? Something that is not at that moment in his, in his possession. Well, the very fact that they are very unique to him is important. Not universal, universal items, but specific and most importantly, recognizable as Jacob's. Clever, bold, wise, tamer. Jacob went into her, she conceived, she arose, went away, taking off her veil, she put her widowhood clothing back on. What is going on here in the middle of Joseph's story? What do we see here? Well, firstly, this was Tamar's response to the original deceit of Judah as he neglected to present Shelah to her as promised earlier by Judah himself in verse 11. Secondly, Tamar, by her actions, counteracted Judah's original deceit. Can you think forward in the Joseph narrative to a similar response and situation, just for a moment, where one person was deceived, and time has gone on, and that person counter-deceives those who originally deceived them. Can you think of it? Joseph. Joseph will counter-deceive his brothers when they arrive in Egypt. As he hides his identity, chapter 42 and 7, we'll get there in a few months, a few weeks' time. Why draw these parallels between Tamar and Joseph? Why are the lessons here for us? And what are they? Well, Joseph and Tamar were deceived. Joseph and Tamar both counter-deceived. And through their counter-deception came reconciliation. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Joseph and Tamar were deceived. Joseph and Tamar were both counter-deceivers. And through their counter-deception came reconciliation. Tamar's actions should not be perceived as unrighteous, but righteous counter-deception, if there's such a thing. 
Why? Well, it was to continue the God-given promise of a blessed and royal seed through the line of Judah. Wenham states, a Canaanite woman so eager to procreate and continue the royal line was the one who was blessed. A rare thing for a Canaanite woman. Tamar's bold initiative was in line with what had been told to Judah previously regarding the blessing upon his seed. And it will bring one who will rule over the nations, over all nations. A seed of kingship descent. We'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. As word of Tamar's pregnancy then reached Judah, he orders her execution in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. However, the personal items of Judah gave... Uh, which he gave as a promise to Tamar, was still in her possession. Yet again, parallel circumstances are found within the Joseph narrative as Joseph's brothers ask their father to examine Joseph's bloodied, multicolored coat. Therefore, we must recognize that deception is one major theme and only one in both narratives. However, Judah recognized his wrongdoing and unrighteousness as he calls Tamar righteous in verse 26. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Tamar's desire for the continuation of the seed of Judah was a righteous thing. Tamar bore twins, Zerah and Perez. We see that Zerah was the firstborn son as a result of the appearing of his arm, which then was retracted, giving way to Perez. Second-born son, verse 28 to 30. And just so the Jacob narrative began with a story of twins wrestling in their mother's womb, so now at the end of the Judah narrative, there's a similar struggle. Quite astounding, isn't it? Have you noticed the pattern emerging here with second-born sons? you ever seen it before? The fact that the younger son is often chosen and blessed over the firstborn is an unmissable characteristic in Genesis. Let me name them for you. You ready for this? Abel, not Cain. Jacob, not Esau. Joseph, not Reuben. Perez, not Zerah. And Ephraim, not Manasseh. How do we evaluate and summarize these circumstances rightly? 
I think we just have to submit to the reality that God elects, elects as he wills. Okay? We submit that God is sovereign and he elects those who he wills. But let me show you something here that will bring these things to a conclusion tonight. Turn to Ruth chapter 4. I'll give you a second to do that. Ruth chapter 4. Verses 18 to 22. Ruth 4, 18 to 22. I'm going to read these words, please, on the page as I, as I read them to you. You'll recognize some names. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Turn to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. Look at three verses here. This is the genealogy. Very important genealogy. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Verse 17. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Verse 18. Now the birth. Of Jesus Christ. It was God's way. That Abel. Not Cain. That Jacob. Not Esau. That Joseph. Not Reuben. That Perez. Not Zerah. Would be the Davidic line. Leading to the birth. Of Jesus Christ. Therefore, through the determination of Tamar to have children of promise, she fought her way into Israel and secured for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the Savior of the world. But remember this she was a Canaanite. A woman outside of the people of God turned out to be the heroine of God's people. The Judah Tamar account teaches us that God's purpose is fully bound up 
in the growth, development, and sanctification of his people. God is always at work in the shaping of lives so that they serve his design. Finally, Tamar was the first of five women in the genealogy of Christ, as we have it in Matthew 1. This is them, this is their names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Note who is absent. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Why? Why are they not there? Well, firstly, notice that the four predecessors of Mary were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabites, and Bathsheba was a Hittite. Therefore, Tamar and company declare that in Christ there is hope for the Gentile nations. Matthew amplifies this truth by bookending his book with the emphasis on Gentiles. With the genealogy at the beginning, which we've just read, and this verse at the end. Do you know it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All nations. Four unlikely women. All used by God. In a perfectly designed. And orchestrated plan. To bring about Christ. What a God we have. So great that his hidden hand. Constantly surprises as he works in history and in the hearts of his people for their benefit. For the fulfillment of his work and his purposes. Do you know him? Do you trust him for what's to come? May we all have him as our own and trust in his perfect plan for our lives. Amen. Let's sing together, shall we? By faith, we see the hand of God. Let's stand as we respond to what we have heard this evening from God's word.